I want to ask you a couple questions. Does anybody know where the bloodiest battle of the Civil War was fought? Gettysburg. How many people died there, roughly? A lot. Like 60,000. Does anybody know how many days the battle waged? Three days for the most part. Has anybody been to Gettysburg? What'd you think while you were there? How'd you feel? Was it, was it kind of, anybody on this side been to Gettysburg? How did you feel when you were there? Didn't feel anything, huh? Okay. Somebody over here that was at Gettysburg. Lynn, how did she, you know, there is no way she's between 16 and 19 years old. I know that because she's much older than me. And I just turned 40. How did you feel at Gettysburg? Yeah. How did you feel at Gettysburg? Um, overwhelming sadness. Why do you suppose she would feel overwhelming sadness there? Because she was much older than me, right? <laughs> Why would she feel overwhelming sadness being in Gettysburg? Because of all the people that died. You know, you walk through... When I went to that place... I had tears that welled up in my eyes because I had, I kind of like history. And I had read some things that went on there. And I realized how many people, much younger than me, and I was younger then, I was probably 37 when I went to Gettysburg. I'm an old man, I turned 40 this summer. Anyways, but, you know, boy, folks, your age died there. What was that battle, what was that whole war over? Slaves was part of it. Keeping the country together. Yeah, it was to save a union of United States. And the South were fighting pretty much for states' rights. And the North was fighting to keep it all together. Okay, um, let's go back a little bit farther in history. Um, who was the man? that warned the colonists that the British were coming. Paul Revere, the midnight ride of Paul Revere. One if by day, two if by night, something like that, right? Okay, good. I've been, that's super, all right? Who was the first president of the United States? George Washington. Did you know that there was some different organization? I forgot what they called it. And I think his name was Hanson. Was actually the first president of our country, but they didn't call it that then. That was before George. But George Washington was the first president of the United States. Okay, now I'm going to throw you a curveball. Do we have baseball fans here? A couple. I know we have a couple. I'm going to throw you a curveball now. Where was the very first elders meeting? Very first elders meeting. Not Switzerland. Let's go back. Jerusalem. Okay? And that's pretty much what I'd like to have us do. You folks understood a lot about the Civil War. You, and I know you understand a lot about the Revolutionary War. And the reason I didn't ask too many questions was I don't remember that much about the Revolutionary War. I guess I wasn't paying attention that year in school. But what I want to talk about this morning, I've entitled it Our Precious Faith. And really what it is is a historical and functional overview of the Apostolic Christian Church Nazarene, which is our 
branch, if you want to call it that, of the vine of Christ. We also have a sister church that we refer to as the Apostolic Christian Church of North America. Okay, they're very similar to us. A little different in a few areas, but not many. And what I really want to do is take it from the Apostolic Fathers, or those folks that were at the first elders meeting, to today. And that's pretty much what we're going to do. My, and my hope, if I can get this thing to work the way I want, I have some objectives for us. The first one is, again, to give a brief, brief historical overview. I'm going to give you some dates. There's no test. You don't have to remember it. I don't have any copies of this, but if somebody wants it, if you'll give me your name and your address, I'll mail you a set. I just didn't know how many to do. And also talk about the body fitly joined together. Um, Josh, could you read the first reference there? Ephesians 4.16. From whom the whole body was fitly joined together and compact by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working the measure of every part make it increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Okay, thank you. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus and he referred to what as the body fitly joined together? What do you suppose he meant by that? What is the body? The church. And it's the body of what? Christ. Okay, but it's, it's the church. It's the believers. Which church? Which church? The church in Ephesus alone? Hold that thought. You'll have the answer by the time we get to the end. Okay, we're going to look at a comparison of our church today with the early church. We're also going to talk about the benefits. This, this forum today is supposed to be really positive. I want you to focus on all the good things that you know about church, our church, the Apostolic Christian Church. Focus on those things. We really need to, you know, there's a song that says, count your many blessings. We need to think about our fellowships and what we like about them. What's it going to do if we think about what we don't like? We're going to get depressed. It's going to make us sad. What happens if we think about the things we do like? We're going to be much happier. You know, and there are going to be things we may not like. But there's a whole lot more that we do like. And we need to focus on those things. And what I really want us to do throughout this thing is to take everything we do, and we won't talk about, we won't talk about doctrine at all. I promise you that. That's, we don't have time for that. But what I want us to do is, again, compare what we do to what they did when the apostles got together. Okay? Um, we're going to talk first about 20, year AD 26 to AD 98. And in AD 26... John the Baptist started preaching. What did he preach? Repentance. Okay? And he preached that someone would come. Who would come? Christ would come. I know, see, those are those questions that, you know, you just you should never ask because everybody knows the answer. But, you know, I would have thought that Christ died in A.D. 33. He didn't. He died in A.D. 30. So I learned something when I did this. So in 30 A.D., Christ died, but he also rose. Four years later... There was a first martyr. Anybody know who the first martyr was? Stephen. Very good. In AD 45, James was beheaded. In AD 54, Philip was stoned. In AD 63, James, the son of Alphaeus, was cast from the pinnacle of the temple. That's how he was killed. In AD 64, by the orders of Nero, Barnabas and James the Just and Mark were slain. 
by AD 69, Peter and his wife were slain. Does anybody know how Peter was killed? He was crucified upside down. Do you know why he was crucified upside down? Didn't want to die the same as Christ. His wife was also crucified. Okay. In AD 70 was the end of the Jewish state. What happened in, in AD 70, the Jews had provoked the Romans enough. And the Romans had had it. And there was a general by the name of Titus that was told to go take care of these Jews once and for all. And he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And he begged them to surrender. And they wouldn't. So he blockaded the city. No food went out. No people went in and out. And he waited. And he still begged them. And they would not surrender. It got to the point where they ate their own children to survive. Finally, he had had enough. And he gave orders to his, his men to go into that city and slay every man, woman, and beast. Any living thing. He was so appalled at what they had done to their own people. Does anybody know why that happened? What did Jesus say to those that were weeping when he was going to Golgotha? He said, weep not for me, but for what? For your children. And your children's children, thank you. It was, it was, it was pretty much a sentence. They had put the Son of God to death. And they, in their own stubbornness, it cost them everything they had. And they were scattered until 1948, when by a decree of the United Nations, the nation of Israel came back into being. Also, look at what happened in AD 70. Aristarchus, Epaphras, Aquila and Priscilla, Silas, Andrew, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, and Matthias were all slain in one year. How does that make you feel as you find out? You know, and these are the folks we read about in the Bible. You know, just about all of Paul's friends were gone here. How does that make some of you feel? How would you have felt if you were there? Maybe sad? Maybe concerned? Maybe like, a little bit like I felt when I was in, in Gettysburg? Why did they die? Because of their faith. They died because they would not deny the name of Jesus Christ. They died putting together a body of believers that we have the privilege of being part of. That's why we need to know these things. We need to understand in a measure, what some of these folks went through. 23 years later, Luke was hanged. Now, Luke was the, was the great physician, the beloved physician. As I, something struck me when I saw this 23-year span. How do you suppose Luke felt for those 23 years? Thinking about all the people that were killed before him. Think about that nucleus. Let's, let's talk about your group right here at Eastern Camp. And you folks have been blessed and had somebody, Jesus Christ died. And some of you, 
Twelve of you were his disciples that were part of the inner circle, so to speak. One of you had betrayed him, and unfortunately for you, you're already dead. But anyways, um, 11 of you were left. They, you've kind of replaced, the inner circle has replaced him with Matthias. Um, then you met this, this, this really great evangelist and missionary whose name was Paul who was one of your enemies, now he's part of the body of believers. And, and everything seems to be working. The churches are firing on all cylinders. There are churches springing up all over. And all of a sudden, a bunch of your friends have been slain. How are you feeling if you're Luke? Upset? Okay. Why would we be upset? Maybe why he wasn't slain? Okay, so there's some wonderings. There's perhaps some, uh, maybe a little bit of, of concern. You know, why, why would he be upset his friends were gone? Maybe why would God let this happen? Okay, good. What else about emotions of Luke? Discouraged. discouraged. Why discouraged? That's a good... Okay, Jude, and Judas, honest, I'd be discouraged too. I'd be discouraged. I'd feel lonely. I'd wonder what was happening. But for some reason, God decided that Luke is supposed to still hang around. There is somebody else that's still around of that first kind of inner circle. Uh, wasn't Antipas, but Antipas was burned. Um, John. For four years after, after Luke is hanged, John dies. John uh, died of natural causes. He was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So maybe some of those years, I don't know how long John was on the Isle of Patmos. I didn't do my homework well enough to do that. Uh, but at least John was somewhere. He was only two years. Thank you. So maybe there was John. John was probably living in Ephesus when he was not in exile. Uh, but... I want, us to get, I, I want us to try, in a measure, to get inside the heads of these, these patriarchs so that we can understand what they really did for us. Had they not stayed the course, had they not stood in complete opposition to pretty much the Roman Empire, we wouldn't be here. Because we are a church after the order of the apostles, okay? And it didn't end there. Uh, Timothy was a young man when, when Paul was around, but he was stoned in AD 98. Um, and then I kind of got the next one that says, those who knew them, and you'll understand why. Uh, at the turn of the century, roughly around uh, 112 AD, there was an emperor whose name was Trajan, and he decided to really turn up the heat on the church. It wasn't enough that we just pretty much go after the big guys here. We got to go out full force and try to put this this movement called Christianity completely down. We're going to snuff them out. Uh, Simon Cleopas, who was a cousin of Christ and lived 120 years before he was slain, he was, he was one of the, those that knew the first group. Clement and Polycarp were also eyewitnesses of the Acts of the Apostles. Why do you suppose it's important for us to be able to figure out who might have known the apostles? Or why, maybe, let me ask the question a different way. Those gentlemen 
had writings too. Why would it be important for us to be able to verify where they got their information? Any ideas? Why would we want to know that what these guys said came from John and Paul and Timothy? It, exactly. It adds validity to what they're saying. What it gives us is that piece of the puzzle that we, can't ha that we can have this in our American history because up until, well, when my dad was a boy, and he's here in case we have some questions later, but when my dad was a boy, there were folks that were alive that fought in the Civil War. That's how old he is. Okay? So he perhaps in Mansfield, Ohio, could talk to somebody that was in the Civil War and knew exactly what happened and knew that what they wrote down was true. We can actually do that through Christian history records and go all the way back to the apostles so that we have not only the Bible, which, which is the inspired Word of God, and that is, that's all we should need, but we can find historical record that non-Christian people kept of the very things that bear witness to what the Bible says. That's why it's important for us to know who, uh, who knew those that were there. Um, Ignatius was a disciple of John. Ignatius lived into the following century. In AD 204, Tertullian wrote, the blood of the Christians is the seed grain of the church. As thousands were slaughtered, Christianity grew. Why? Does it make any sense that the harder they tried, the harder the devil tried to put the screws on Christianity, the faster it grew? Okay, very good. Jesus is coming back for his church and nothing that man can do can change God's plan. Super. And you know what? We need to remember that. Because there could very well come a day when we will face, you and I, some of the same things that these folks went through. When I was coming out of high school, starting work in the, in the early 80s, it was an in thing to be a born-again Christian. You were looked upon with respect. Uh, it was nothing for... Jimmy Carter was the president. He, wasn't, he was a super nice man, but not a really good president. But anyways, that was in 76 to 80. He told the American people publicly that he was a born-again Christian. Uh, people asked Ronald Reagan if he was. I don't believe he was, because he didn't know whether he was or he was. But it was not... It wasn't looked down upon to be. And you actually had a political movement in this, in this country called the Moral Majority. And they had tremendous power. Within 20 years, we have gone from being not only tolerated but embraced and encouraged to express our viewpoints to being told that we don't have the right to criticize what others do. We don't have the right to have the Ten Commandments posted in the school. In some places, they're trying to say you don't have the right to gather with your friends on school property to have a Bible study after school. That's 20 years. That's less years 
just a few more years than you've been alive. It's half my lifetime. And I'm 40 years old. I can't imagine what may happen by the time if the Lord tarries and I end up 80 years old. We need to know what happened. Now, when the devil tried to tighten the screws and tried to, tried to close down Christianity, where do you, what do you think the people did? Just sat there and got beat upon? Some of them left. They went different places to do what? To live. But what did they do when they went to move? When, what did they do as they moved somewhere? Did they stop preaching their faith? They spread the gospel even more. And, you know, that's why Tertullian wrote that the blood of Christians is the seed grain of the church. As the church was persecuted, it, what, it caused to, what it caused them to do, first of all, was to look inside and find out, is my faith really important to me? What really was it that Jesus did? Am I really changed? And when they realized the precious gift that was given to them, that they could be redeemed from sin, picked out of the miry clay of sin, and have their lives changed, be empowered by the Holy Spirit, they realized that that really is something worth fighting for. And God, because it was part of His plan, gave them the grace to continue. We actually get to almost the third century before the doctrines of the church started to deteriorate. And the interesting thing is, they really started to deteriorate when the government got involved or in, embraced Christianity. And all of a sudden, decisions were being made that changed the doctrines, and they kind of lost sight of where they were and what the true meaning of the church was. Okay, so now we're going to jump all the way up to 1100, and a group of people starts to be known, and they're called the Anabaptists. And they found themselves in pretty much the same situation with Christianity as the early apostolic fathers did with the political powers at that time. And the first guy that we really can, can, can dig out was a man whose name was Peter Waldo. Does anybody have any idea what the, one of the main problems they had, the Anabaptists had with the organized religion at the time? It had to do with infant baptism. The, by, the, by the time that, you know, it took maybe 700 years and the church believed that baptizing babies was the only way to go because that way you ensured that everybody was going to be in heaven. Well, you can't baptize a baby that doesn't know anything. All that ends up being is a feel-good experience for the parents and the grandparents and only got the little kid wet. And it troubled those like Peter Waldo. And they said, you know, this isn't what our early fathers of faith were preaching. They were preaching that there had to be a baptism that took place after a person had been changed, after they had been converted. And so Peter Waldo um, was one of those that kind of got moving on that. Just to give you a little bit of a, of a line in history, in 1440, the first printing press uh, was, was developed. And what did the advent of the printing press do for Christianity? Anybody have any ideas? Very good. That's right. Yep. It, 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 it allowed the Bible or the Constitution of Christianity to get into people's hands. I don't remember who Gutenberg worked with, but Gutenberg worked with somebody 
as for the purpose of making sure that Bibles got into the hands of people. Because all of a sudden, you and I could read the Word. Or someone in our family who was blessed with literacy, that, with the ability to learn, could read the Word. And then, you know what? As that happened, more people realized that what those guys that stood behind the lecterns in all those, those beautiful cathedrals were saying really wasn't what the Bible said. They were reading some things that they thought made sense and would be kind of nice for them, but that was it. 1550, there were a group of men, Han Koch, Leonard Meister, John Huss, and Felix Mance, began a reformation, but not like Luther's. This was more a reformation of trying to take us back to true Christianity. You know, yeah, a lot of what Luther wants to do, but going farther, going right back to where we needed to be. In 1648, the French Inquisition. Now, I'm not going to ask you any questions about that. I don't even know if they cover that in high We might have covered that a little bit in high school, but if you go off to college and you study some European history, you certainly will study the French Inquisition. But on one night, St. Bartholomew's night, 40,000 Huguenots were slain. Huguenots were a, were a religious group of people. In one night, 40,000 were slain for their faith. And this wasn't the first century, it wasn't the second century, it was 1648. All of a sudden, we're getting a little bit closer to home. I know it's ancient history, but it's not thousands of years ago. An interesting thing happened on that night that you need to remember. Um, Brother Samuel Freilich's family escaped. They were Huguenots. They escaped France uh, that evening before that occurred. 1729, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, Wesley started preaching, their followers were the first Methodists. Interestingly enough, their doctrines in 1729 were just like ours, just like ours. And if you have a chance to go to Brunswick, Georgia, the first church that they preached in is still there in Brunswick, Georgia. But, it's, but I want us to remember, the Methodists started out exactly like the Apostolic Christian Church, exactly like the first church of the apostles in the first century. Okay, who is S.H. Freilich? Anybody know? Some of you know. Pardon? He's kind of like the founder of our church. Thank you. And do you know that he, has, he publicly said he never ever wanted to develop a following of believers. But he really was the first person of, if we can call it, our fellowship. Because he, well, let's go through it. Let's, let's talk a little bit about his history. He was born in, uh, in Brugge in Switzerland in 1803. Okay. We're getting close to the Civil War, aren't we? We're also getting closer to coming to America. Um, in eight, from 1820 to 1825, but his parents wanted him to be a preacher in the worst way. So they pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they enrolled him in a seminary. And he became a minister. Actually, he went to the University of Basel, studied theology, and became a preacher in the state church in Switzerland. But he wasn't a believer. 
He preached his first sermon in complete unbelief. He was preaching theology, not a living faith. But he only preached one like that. And God recognized in this man's heart a sincere desire to serve God and to understand what the Bible was all about and what it really meant. Uh, he was in Lloydville, was where his, his first congregation was. But by 1831, they excommunicated him. Anybody know why? Why would the state church excommunicate him? He was going to, because what happened was very good. From the time he graduated from the, from the seminary, the University of Basel, to when he started preaching, he was converted. God stirred in his heart. The Holy Spirit stirred in his heart and showed him the errors of the state church. So he started preaching sermons like we would have in any one of our fellowships in the state church. And they didn't like it. And they told him to stop. And he wouldn't. So they excommunicated him. So what happened was, and this is kind of interesting because what, you know, what college are we at here? Eastern Mennonite University. Well, in 1832, what he did, he didn't have any place to go. He didn't have a church that he could be with. So he started working with the old Baptists, which were the Mennonites, the followers of Menno Simon. And in Geneva, he was baptized by a pastor of that fellowship. So we have very similar roots, almost identical roots, to the Mennonites as well. Okay. Now, let's keep moving because this is where I think it gets exciting. Remember, he was baptized in 1831. By 1840, nine years after he was baptized, there were 55 churches. That's amazing. How'd that happen? How can that happen? The Spirit working in people. Do you know that the authorities didn't leave Brother Freilich alone? And even though he had been excommunicated from the church and went off and started preaching in homes, in barns, in fields, they still went after him and still went after him, or constantly going after him. Many times he would preach a sermon and he would be arrested and they would take him off to jail and they would tie his hands and his feet together and they would hang him on a hook overnight by, his, by the rope that hung his hands. And he'd hang there overnight and then the next day they would cut him loose and he'd go out and he'd go to another church so he could preach again. And they'd get a hold of him again, and they'd arrest him, and they'd take him to jail, and they'd tie... That's what happened to him. But in nine years from his baptism, five, 55 churches. That's amazing. But so is this. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's see. Uh, in 45, five years after that, he was expelled from Switzerland completely. You're out of here, Sam. Sorry. Um, you won't listen to us. Uh, we've tried to help you. We've tried to tell you you've got to be quiet, um, so you're gone. So he's thrown out of Switzerland, and he goes into France and meets a John Diebold, um, who was just another like-minded believer that was probably kicked out of something else. Uh, let's see, 1847. Oh, we got elders that were ordained. That's kind of cool. Brothers Freilich, Diebold, Mangold, and Pfaff were the first elders of what became the Apostolic Christian Church. And we'll see when that happens, too, when the name gets changed. 
By, by 1850, we're up to 110 churches. Every nine or ten years, they doubled in churches. How's that happening? Michael, give your answer again. The Holy Spirit's working, and people are talking. And they had a society. They had, the world at that point had no clue what true Christianity was because the state religions were telling them what it was, and it was a lie. So these people, need, what the state religion would tell them is, this is what the Bible says. And you know what? You can't do it. So don't worry about it. But what these brothers were preaching is, this is what the Bible says, that we have to live holy, sanctified lives, separated from the world and unto Christ. And you know what? You can do it because Jesus died and he rose again. And through that experience, he allows, he opens up the door, grace has appeared. And we, through conversion, through a dying of self and an embracing of Jesus Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and change us can be empowered to live different lives. Not slaves to sin anymore. Not having to go and confess our sins in a little room in some gorgeous looking cathedral to a guy that's probably committing the same things or worse. No, we can confess our sins to God who forgives us of our sins and gives us the power not to repeat them. That's what these brothers were preaching. That's what the brothers and sisters in our fellowships are telling their neighbors and their friends today. The same thing. Brother Freilich died in, on January 15, 1857 at the age of 52 or 3. My, my math is real poor. Uh, he basically died because he was in very poor health. You know why? Why do you suppose he was in poor health? That prison didn't help. He ran himself ragged, spreading the gospel. That's why he died so soon. Now, the other way to look at it is that the Lord loved Brother Samuel very much. And because Brother Sam put so much into his faith in those first few years that the Lord said that's enough Sam you come now be with me and let those others let Foff and Mangold and them push the wheelbarrow for a while and they will find faithful ones that follow them that will carry the torch but it's your time now to rest okay how did we get to America well believe it or not brother Fraley had some something to do with the fact that we're here um, in 1834, there were two families, the Verklers and the Farneys. They went to the Black River, and Black River is in the Adirondacks of New York State. Just north of Syracuse is the Black River. So these two families are there. They've got some, some old order Amish-type connections, um, but, uh, but they were believers in, in the gospel, and they needed to be fed. And in 1847, Brother Fraley sends a Brother Benedict Wayaneth who was a single man but was an elder and he sends him to New York State to start the very first church that would become an apostolic Christian church and brother Joseph Verkler was ordained the first elder in North America that 
church, again, was up in the Black River area, which is about an hour and a half north of Syracuse. In 1850, there was a man by the name of Andreas or Andrew Braun, who was a shoemaker by trade and was apprenticing in different shoemaker shops, but had a burden in his heart that there, that there was something stirring in his heart. He needed some answers, and God heard the stirring. Well, God was doing the stirring, the Holy Spirit stirring, and God heard the, the sincere desires of, of Brother Andrew to, to know what truth was, and the Lord led him to a shoemaker shop where he could hear the truth. And he came under the, pre the conviction of the word by the preaching of Brother Freilich and was baptized by Brother Freilich. He was ordained an elder in Bavaria, in uh, Neuschwanstein, which is an area of Bavaria where there's a beautiful castle that I was at once, really neat place. And he fell under tremendous uh, persecution by a man whose name was King Ludwig because he basically told Louis that he was doing things that were wrong and King Ludwig said, you must be silent. And Andrew said, I can't. And he said, then I am going to banish you and all of your followers from Bavaria. So they loaded up on boats and they came to America. Before Brother Andrew left, he decreed that if the burden placed on him and his family, a burden of having to leave their homeland, anything close to that was ever placed on the king, he would not survive. And shortly after, they banished Brother Andrew and his family from Germany, from Bavaria. Uh, history records that King Ludwig went insane, and he and his psychiatrist drowned each other somehow in a lake in front of the castle. I've seen the lake and I've seen the castle. This castle was amazing. It was, it was unbelievable. This castle, he liked fresh fish.